From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. My diary is complete. I, I don't leave anything out. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sounds, sound bites, and audible flotsam and jetsam we find all over the world. We peruse the airwaves, the internet, international audio festivals, and other oral nooks and crannies where we unearth great finds to bring you each week on ReSound. It's a, an uninhabited diary. Tell all, show all. Robert Shields might hold the record for the longest diary ever written, clocking in at 37.5 million words. Beginning in 1972, for reasons pretty much unknown, he started chronicling his days in five-minute increments, keeping track of everything he ate, everything he bought, everything he saw, said, and did, from reading the newspaper to using the bathroom. He repeated this obsessive listing for every minute of every hour of every day for 25 years, until a stroke rendered him unable to type. 1220 to 1225, I strip to my thermals. I always do that. Not even the most boring routine activity was omitted from the diary. 1225 to 1230, I discharge urine. 1230 to 1250, I ate leftover salmon, about seven ounces, drank 10 ounces of orange juice while I read the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations. In fact, the most fascinating thing about Robert's diary is that very little of it is actually fascinating. It chronicles, even celebrates the little repetitive actions, washing dishes, walking the dog, paying the bills, that make up most of a person's life. The entire day is accounted for. In the spirit of the obsessive diarist, we dedicate today's ReSound to repetition, to repetition in sound and story. Sometimes a song gets stuck in your head, the same refrain, over and over and over again, until it nearly drives you insane. Or maybe not insane. Sometimes the tunes in your head can be soothing, even empowering. Producer Ronan Kelly found someone for whom these earworms were a real lifesaver at a time and place when he was surrounded by death. It's like riding a bike. You never quite forget how to keep an edge in your knife. It's a trick I learned from working in the meat factories. On the killing line. The slaughterhouse. It was rough work, tough work. Remember the first time I walked into a meat factory? I was about six years of age. My dad had a load of cattle for killing. It was a complete assault on the senses. The smell of flesh and fat and blood and that almost like sweet smell. Sweet smell. Sweet smell. of a backbone being sawed in half. I remember I ran out. I nearly got sick, I didn't dog. Wiped my eyes and went back in again. 
was grand then. Is it a kind of dream out of the tide, the river of death downstream? Oh, is it a dream? Ten years later, I was working on one. And from then on, it was a roll call of factories around the country. Lyons's and Goodman's in Longford AIBB, Keepak Clonee, Mastermeets Bandon, Keepak at League. Oh. It's funny, like, when I think of those places and all the blood and the early mornings and... I have fallen for another, she can make her own way and the first thing that hits me is a couple of songs and this one in particular with that league I have fallen for another she can make her own way and even if she asks me now and I'd let her go I used to love her I used to love her once long long time ago it's gone all my loving is gone whoa whoa it's gone all my loving is gone Earworms, they're called, are songs that you just can't get out of your head. It's gone. All my loving is gone. Whoa, whoa, it's gone. All my loving is gone. It's gone. All my loving is gone. Whoa, whoa, it's gone. All my loving is gone. Well, for that year I was in that league, there were three or four songs that I just kept on singing. I used to love her. I used to love her once, long, long time ago. Jesus, it nearly drove me mad. At half five, walking up the Boyle-Riscommon Road to get a lift at Shankill Cross, there was another lad from Elfin who used to work on the factory and we used to get a lift off him in an Opal Green Cadet. And he used to give a lift to two other lads. And it would be like really quiet in the morning and frosty and clean and cold and all would be there with the night sky and there wouldn't be a sound. And next thing you'd hear the thud, 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 thud and the throbbing of an Opal Cadet engine barreling along from Elfin. And the song, I used to love her glaring out the window. And then they'd pull up with a skid at the cross. Oh, you're itchy. The door would open and three lads all beaming out, smiling, hung over heads and some of them and big red faces, smoke everywhere. Would you like a major, Richie? No thanks, lads, I don't smoke. And I'd get into the car and I'd ask them, but I'd say, I'd prefer now if you didn't smoke, you know, for me health. And they found this hilarious. I'd prefer now if you wouldn't smoke, he says. Well, that's a good one. I'd prefer now if you wouldn't smoke. Put on that tape there. And I said, ah, lads, give it a rest for once, will you? Just for one morning. No, on it'll go. I have fallen for another. She can make her own way home. And even if she asked me now, I'd let her go alone. Well, I used to see her up the chapel when she went to Sunday Mass. The whole way to league, which was 30 miles. That's a long way, an open cadet. Listen to the same song over and over and again. I'm going back to that league to Keepak, to the place that I used to work in. The faces have changed and the people are different. But the sights and the sounds and the smells are all the same. Lorry loads of cattle are still going in at one end. Pens and pens of Charlie, Cementals, Aberdeen Angus, Black Whites, Red Whites, you name it, they're all in there.
There's a sense of tension in the air. They say they don't know the differ, but I reckon they do. Like a procession, the cattle are hoisted up onto an automated cattle line, and they're hoisted up by their back legs from the killing box, where they just fall, fell out of the box there, and they put a hook into the back leg and swing it up, it's hanging up by the back leg, and then into the bloodbath. Now, I did most of the jobs in the killing line, and this is the one job that I didn't particularly like was in bloodbath because the animal was still sort of half alive or, well, the brain was dead but the body was still had muscle memory and was still twitching and kicking all over the place. So you had a big, like, what, 800 kilogram bullock hanging by its back leg and it's swinging around the place. And it's called bloodbath literally because all the blood is cut out of the bullock and it flows down into the bloodbath. And what you have to do is you have to stick the knife. Well, what you do is you hold onto the front leg with one hand and you literally sharpen up your knife and you need a really keen edge here and you just drive up the knife up into the throat area just above the head because it's hanging upside down then stick it right up towards the heart and give it a twitch at the top where you cut the jugular and all the blood rushes out and down into the blood bath which is why it's called the blood bath and uh, then you cut off the, the two front legs at the, the knee area, the hock area You're doing like 600 cattle a day, it was savage from 7 in the morning to 7 in the evening some evenings and um, you know some days you just you'd have to switch off the brain and uh, just go to somewhere else I remember there was a window there used to be rows of windows at the very top of the ball just behind the the killing line and uh, you'd stare out there This song, for some reason, just started coming into my head and I used to go into like an automatic state of mind and for somewhere in me, this song would come out. Then the line moves on every 30 seconds to the next station and then it goes on to what they call the Flanker Station, which was my main job. I worked there the most for a year and uh, that was tough. Yeah, or standing on a, like a steel platform and there was two pedals at the bottom of the platform, like a little cage. And the bullock would be standing or swinging in front of you, hanging by its back legs, its belly facing you, and its head down the ground. And with one tap of your toe, you'd shoot up to the top, six foot in the air, up and down, every 30 seconds, because the bullock would be sitting in front of you, hanging in front of you, and uh, it'd have all its height on it. And what I did was flanking. And you had to open up the skin for the height, for to pull the height off. I'd have to have my knife sharp again zip up to the top and stick my knife into the top where the two legs would be spread at the back and the belly is facing you so you're cutting right down to where the testicles were really and ripping right down you'd shoot down to the bottom uh, with the platform and your knife would just run through it like butter and you'd cut right down to the chest area and then back up again you'd grab a hold of the left hand side where the skin would be hanging out and then you'd open it all out and you'd skin it out pull away the skin from the flesh, that's what they call flanking, and you'd rip it all the way down to the bottom till the stomach was bare and all you'd get this yellow flesh and fat and red meat and the steam would be rising off it and then up again to the top and you'd hold out with, the, with your right hand you'd grab the skin and then with your left hand you'd skim all the way down again. There's a high wind in the tree. It was very skillful and I was quite proud of the fact you have to use both hands but your nails would be cut and pushed back. Bright eyes, burning like fire Bright eyes, how can you close and feel? How can the light that burns so brightly 
suddenly burn so pale, bright eyes. Brutal. Starry, starry night. Paint your palette blue and grey. And uh, it was just, it was obviously a way of coping with all the, the brutality of the place and the banality of the work and the deadness and the monotony of the work. Shadows on the hills. It was kind of like a safe place to go or a way of coping with what was happening around me. And things weren't going too hot in my life at the time either. Catch the breeze and the winter chills. In colours on the snowy linen land Now I understand The edge is the secret. It's very hard to get the edge. You think now that it would turn me off meat working in a place like that, but it never did. I suppose I grew up with it. I mean, you were working so hard as well, like that, you know, you had to eat beef and food. You needed to be strong. And I grew very strong that year. But I got very yellow from lack of sunlight. In fact, you could always know the lads that worked in that league. They all looked yellow. My hands became huge and I developed very hard muscles. I had nicks in hands and cuts all over my hands. In fact, I still have the scars. The worst is when I stabbed myself in the knee. I'll never forget it. A really dirty bullet came in. His belly was all crusted with muck and shit from the winter and I don't know, I should never be let in. But anyway, I was trying to rip through the belly to flank him and I was tugging and pulling at him. I was making no headway at all and I was driving the knife into it, trying to pull the skin away. Then suddenly I hit this bruise or something and the knife just skinned through it and I went right through, stabbed myself in the knee. Oh jeez, I'll never forget the pain of it. I just, I just collapsed. I mean, that phrase, the blood drained from my face, I felt it all going from my face. I remember looking down, looking at the knee. I nearly fainting. And uh, anyway, I reached down, pulled out the knife, called the foreman over, drove myself to the hospital. Beep. In Wisconsin, it's only a few miles away, about 16 miles away. Beep. Got fixed up Beep. and was back at work the next day. Beep. How you suffered for your sanity. And how you tried to set them free. Beep. They would not listen. Beep. They did not Beep. know how. Beep. That other song as well that I loved that song. Sounds so naff now, but Starry Starry Night, Vincent. Starry Starry Night. Starry Starry Night. Paint your palette blue and grey. Flaming flowers that brightly blaze. Look out on a summer's day. Swirling clouds in violet haze. I used to sing that with all my heart and soul. Beep. Beep. Colors changing hue. Beep. Beep. As the line would relentlessly move on. Beep, 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 beep. beep. Next bullet come along. Beep, beep. Another big fleshy hide to be skinned. But that song just stayed in my head all the time. And I figure, I suppose, I, I, I knew just about this painter, Vincent van Gogh, and that, um, but the world didn't understand them. I suppose I felt that I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and I felt I wasn't being understood. Perhaps they'll listen now. So now, whenever the alarm goes off in the morning, 
I can tell you one thing, it's no problem. All I have to do is just either think of those songs or those earworms and I'm bouncing out of bed. It's no effort to go to work. Meat Factory Earworms was produced by Richie Barron and Ronan Kelly for The Curious Ear on RTE Radio 1 in Ireland. Ronan won a 2006 Third Coast Festival Award for his story titled Millionaire, which you can hear at thirdcoastfestival.org. It's all right, it's all right, it's all right. It's all right, it's all right, it's all right. It's all right, it's all right, it's all right. A lot of difficult decisions in life come down to a fundamental predicament. Should I stay and fight? Or should I just give up and go? In the next story, producer Marianne Ron Erickson revisits a turning point in her life when she faced this exact choice. She weaves together a story about a dog, a car accident, a marriage, and a quirky epiphany that changed her life forever. Here's Deviation. My God. He was just playing tricks on us. I'm 20 years old. You're too young. He was a kid, too, or he's the just same being age. Mischievous? How would he know that this would no. progress? Oh, he's about seven or eight. My God. I've got kids older than that now. So, yeah, we'd made a nice little home. And then I was actually standing out in the field with my husband. And it was a beautiful September day. Oh, it was a beautiful day. Bright, clear, blue. You know, it was... It was good weather. He was just playing tricks on us. David is wearing corduroy pants, I'm sure of it, like wide-whaled brown corduroy pants and a homemade big poofy shirt that his mother would have made him. I know, <laughs> like I'm a 20 years shirt. old. The only thing I ever wore, if it was a little chilly in the autumn, it'd be blue jeans and a turtleneck. And we were throwing a boomerang for our dog, which had been my dog since I was a little girl. I got him, picked him up out of a pound in New York City when I was 13. Uh, the dog loved to catch boomerangs. He's a little white, he's a little white and brown terrier mix. And, you know, grass is waving because it's tall grass. And a uh, really nice wooden boomerang. We've had it for years. So, yeah, we'd made a nice little home. <laughs> so, so we throw the boomerang. And the dog get, catches it. He jumps up, catches it in midair, and um, takes off with it. Takes off with it. I'm calling him and calling him, and he won't come back. He's just being mischievous. He, lo- you know, it's that, that impish kind of thing that, that dogs do. And he runs, makes a beeline across the street, and it's a um, two-lane paved country road. And just as he's crossing the road to run to the house for some reason, this guy comes in a white Ford sedan and smacks smacks him and knocks him from one side of the road to the other. The dog is laying absolutely still and we start running. I'm 
instantly crying. And we get there. The guy does not even stop. The bastard does not stop after he hits the dog. And everyone in the neighborhood knows he is he kills animals for fun. He's a strange man. He has a reputation anyway. I don't know whether he hit my dog on purpose. I couldn't tell. David and I both ran over, and um, the dog is laying absolutely still. I don't see any broken bones skewed out. Um, there's some blood, there's some abrasions, but he's absolutely still. I thought he was dead, but he was still breathing, and we... Um, we go and we get in the car as fast as we can. We have it's a, oh, and a big thing was being able to move away to my own house and bring the dog and you know set up home because I'd had him when I was, was thirteen. Really went through some really tough. So yeah, we'd made a nice tough times home. and then tough years when that dog was my only friend or so. We go I and we get in the car as fast as we can. We have it's a nineteen sixty four, so it's old at that point. An old Rambler, Rambler American, and we put him in the car. We get to the vet. Um, Nevetcha says it's massive internal injuries. I don't know and, whether he um, hit my dog on purpose. All the vet does to cure him is to sedate him and keep him calm for about three weeks. And he just kind of heals and patches up inside. They're really, I mean, I think he had a broken leg, but that wasn't a big deal. So he comes back from the vets. He's perfectly fine. You know, he was gimpy. He was sore. But it's, he's, it seemed as though he healed up perfectly. This is in September. By the summer, we've moved to another farm. We're living at a professor's house for the summer. And we get up one morning, and my husband is, he's made plans to go canoeing with his best friend. But when we get up, we see that the dog is bleeding. He's starting to bleed from his rectum. Just a little bit, but it's freaky, and it's scary. And I have to say that this farm we're living at is very remote, we I have don't a phone, know anybody but we only in the have area. one car, and David's going to take that to go canoeing. And I'm really scared, and I ask him to stay. I want him to not go with Jim it's on the trip. It's not always about what you want to do when but, you want to you do know, it. Jim's already coming, and Jim doesn't have a phone, so he's on his way. And there are all these stupid reasons why he and can't this is sort cancel of the trip in-your-face moment. So he goes, and, and I, I stay, and, and sure enough, the bleeding gets worse during the day. Um, I call the vet. There's no way I can get to the vet. This is about farm we're living at half an hour, remote. 40 minutes away. I don't know no anybody in the home. area. I mean, they're way up the road. Nope. I, I walked. I tried to find people that I could borrow a car from or who could take me. I couldn't. And um, so the dog's bleeding more, more and more. And the vet says something in the intestines is rupturing open again from the accident. Why don't you mix up something binding? Binding. What the hell does that mean? So he says, cook up white rice. And I do that, and I cook up white rice, and I mix it with some canned dog food, and I try, I'm trying to feed it to the dog. He's lying on the ground. He's not on the floor. He's not in... I can't see that he's in pain, but he's listless. He's lethargic. And I'm trying to force this gloppy paste down his throat, and he won't eat it. And what happens during the day is that he just bleeds to death in my arms. And... I have to go out and I get a shovel and I go to the side yard and I start digging a hole. To I bury wrapped him in the sheet in the house and I carried him out. And it's not flat ground. It's on the side of the hill just south of their garden, the professor's garden. That was a beautiful day. Right, clear, Goddamn blue. rocky yeah, ground. It's hard digging because I'm not, 
I'm not real strong, but I'm determined. And not always. Um, oh, he's about seven or eight. I don't think it's clay. It's a little clay, but it's not. It's not bad dirt, but it's just a lot of rock. I think rocks I only too. probably got two and a half, three feet deep. That's that impish kind of thing that, and maybe, that dogs do. Maybe it's just three or four feet across at the most. Like this horrible diameter. hole in my life. I'm feeling guilty. I'm feeling like a failure because I haven't. Fa- I haven't saved this dog. I, I haven't done what I really owe tough, this dog. Tough times, tough years, when that dog was my only friend or so. And I'm thought. digging the hole. I'm angry. I'm crying. I'm, it's like, how do you cry and pray and be angry all it's at the same time? It's not always about what you want to do but, when you, you know, at that point, it. I knew that I didn't want to stay in this marriage. And so I buried him. And I go inside and... I don't know. I must have just sat. I don't know how long it was till David came home. Not long. And he, you know, drives up and he and Jim burst through the door and they're all happy and they're, but they're all happy. They're excited. They're breathing, you know, they're they're pink cheeked and everything. And uh, then I, of course, tell them what happens. I've been feeling alone in the marriage for a long time. And, you know, David is And this is sort of the the in your face moment. It's not that he doesn't comfort me. When it's like, yes, sweetie, you're right. You are alone. Bad, bad homecoming. He loved the dog as well. Calling him and he won't come back. He's just being mischievous. He He walked out on me when I needed him. But that's life. When you have a family and the dog was family, that's what you do. It's he not was always a kid about too, what you want to do. Or twenty years. How would it. he know that this would progress to a full-fledged hemorrhaging? You don't have the guts to do too what young, you know you have to, to do. You couldn't married. save the dog. Oh You're not saving this marriage. I've got kids older than that now, and they're still too young to be married. Too young. <laughs> too young to be married. My God. But that was it. Deviation was produced as a class exercise by Marianne Ron Erickson at the Full Moon Audio Art Camp in Canada. Pay special attention to the key words. As we review, repeat them after me. Repeat them after me. I can do anything for as long as I have to. I can do anything for as long as I have to. I can do anything for as long as I have to. I can do anything for 10 days. Repeat them after me. Lots of things benefit from repetition. Few things actually require it. But a mantra, which by its very nature has to be repeated over and over again, is nothing without it. Repeat them after me. And mantras are also eminently transportable, as Sherry Lynn Wood can attest. Sherry travels around the country, inviting people into her mantra trailer, a mobile meditation space, recording studio, and source of mysterious broadcasts in the form of a 1972 bread box trailer. Producer Delaney Hall spent the afternoon with the trailer and its creator. Hi there, this is the mantra trailer. Hello. What's your mantra? Like the little engine that could, that's a famous mantra. I think I can, I think I can. Do <laughs> you have a mantra or prayers? No? Okay. The mantra trailer looks out of place amid the huge glass buildings of downtown Chicago. It's tiny and covered with dirty white aluminum siding. It has signboards on both sides with cryptic messages spelled out in big black letters. They're like the kind you'd see in front of a church. Hi guys, do you have a mantra? Uh, no, no? One side of the trailer reads, this place resides in me. Across the front, it says, curiosity. 
Hey, do you have a mantra? Sherry Lynn Wood is walking up and down the sidewalk in front of the trailer, and she's handing out leaflets. They say the average American is bombarded with 20,000 messages a day. Here's another one. What's your mantra? Hi, guys. Do you have a mantra? Do you know what a mantra is? Sorry, we gotta go. Okay, see you later. It's clear that the people walking by can't really tell if Sherry's a street corner preacher or a political canvasser or a lady trying to sell them something. Some people swerve away from her as she approaches them. Some people stop to take pictures and ask questions. So I'm uh, traveling across the country with the Mantra trailer and I'm just sort of engaging people um, about you know what they say to themselves, um, talking about repetitive language, you know, and I, I like to say your mantra is your uh, immunization against the mass media slogans of the day. Yeah, because there's sort of basically Sherry's trying to coax people into the trailer, which she's converted into a mobile meditation space and recording studio. She's collecting people's mantras, which, according to Sherry, can be pretty much anything you repeat to yourself over and over again. Oh, yeah, hop on in. Yeah, so just have a seat. You can have a seat on the gold seat here. Even if the outside of the trailer is plain, the inside is beautiful in a kitschy, homemade way. The seats are covered with soft gold fabric, and there are fake silk and plastic flowers stapled to the walls. Stepping inside feels like stepping into a little dollhouse. The sounds of the city are muffled, but the trailer still shakes a little bit as the cars outside speed by. I know, it does, I know. You really feel the city in here, don't you? There's an old silver microphone hanging down from the do ceiling, it, the which plugs into a small it, recorder. All you have to do is press record, and then when you're done, you press stop. And if you don't want to do it, you don't have to, okay? Thanks. And um, there's a guest book you can sign on the way out. Okay. All right. When Sherry leaves the trailer, she goes back to approaching people on the street. Hey, do you have a mantra? And the person left inside records whatever they want to. It might be a prayer or hymn. But more often, it's just a word or phrase that pops into the person's head and resonates in some meaningful way. There's no such thing as vacation. 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 There's no such thing as me somebody. I want some candy. Help me somebody. I want some candy. 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 Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I can do anything for 10 days. Oh my goodness. I can do anything for 10 days. Oh my goodness. I can do anything for 10 days. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Listening to Sherry's mantras, you get the sense that she's tapped into the constant internal buzz of daily life. The to-do lists, the little obsessions, the very occasional profound thoughts, and the nonsense words that bounce around in people's heads all day, usually without being spoken aloud. Out. Wig out. Wig out. Wig out. I want to change my life. I want to change my life. I want to change my life.
Hey, do you have a prayer or a mantra that keeps you centered and focused in life, excited about life? Hey, do you have a mantra? I bet you do. At this point, Sherry's pretty much devoted her life to the mantra trailer. She's been on the road for six months now, and for even longer, since the fall of 2006 when she gave up her studio and apartment in Durham, North Carolina, the trailer's been her only home. Hi guys, do you have a mantra? Not to get too metaphysical on you, but the project itself has become a kind of mantra for Sherry. She's wound her way through the southeast and midwest, stopping on street corners and in parking lots to ask skeptical strangers over and over again, what's your mantra? What's your mantra? Hey, do you have a mantra? It's hard to tell if she's obsessed or just devoted, but I guess that ambiguity is at the heart of any repetitive act. Mantra actually is Sanskrit, for, and the Sanskrit word literally I have to pull away. Tool. I have and, to pull um, away. So sort of this dark side I have of to the pull popular pull culture away. mantra of the slogan. I have to pull away. Mantra Trailer was produced by Delaney Hall. To see pictures of Sherry and her Mantra Trailer, and to find links to her website where you can listen to all the mantras she's collected and make your own mantra mix, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. Raise our consciousness about what you think of ReSound. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can all be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Dialogue first time. 大家跟我说，老师好。老师好。Second time. 大家跟我说，老师好。老师好。Today we're exploring repetition and its use in audio documentaries, as emphasis, as a tool of communication, as art. Third time. 大家跟我说，老师好。老师好。When she was younger, violinist and sound artist Rena Katz was often told a story, and for a long time she believed the story to be true. As she grew up, however, she began to understand that this story was a lot more complicated than she could have possibly imagined. Here's Can You Say Ha? I'm Rena Katz in Toronto for Outfront. When I was a girl, I wanted to be a cartographer. I wanted to make maps. I was really interested in taking a globe and laying it out flat on a page. 
Britannia, Britannia, Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv, Tiberia, I certainly understood the limitations of map making. I mean the idea of taking something three-dimensional and making it two-dimensional. There's distortion, there's something lost in the translation. They took off their shoes and they just left, I was told. I asked my mom to teach me trigonometry. I wanted her to explain the mathematics of map making. Let zero be the origin. One degree zero equals pi. One hundred and eighty radians. And one radian equals one hundred and eighty pi degrees. Growing up Jewish and middle class in suburban Toronto, I had basically one idea of what the map of Israel looked like. I learned throughout my life that the Arabs had fled when the state was declared. They took off their shoes and they just left, I was told. Mahmoud Ghannam, Omar Murad, Aid Badr, Muhannad Ghannam, Rul Ashur. One degree equals pi. Let's see how many radians. Let's see how many radians. Well, of course it was incomplete, and of course it was biased. My dad collected books about travels in Palestine before 1948. And when I was growing up, I would look at the titles lining the shelves. The books were everywhere. They were in the living room, the dining room, their bedroom, up the staircase. Paths Through Old Palestine by Margaret Slattery, published in Chicago, 1921. Tent Work in Palestine, a record of discovery and adventure by Claude Renier Condor in two volumes. The titles of the books were like whispers. Palestine Explored. I wondered about the names of the places. I'd never seen maps with those names on them before. I began to realize there was another map of Palestine, and it was a map that came before the map of Israel that I knew. Der MS wegen Palestina. Levin, published in 1917 by the Jewish Socialist Federation of America. Palestina, der Araber, der Zionism, Navik, published by the International Workers' Order in New York, 1932. Palestine explored. Present natural features Palestine and to the prevailing manners, customs, which rights, throw light on the figurative language of, of the people. Bible. By James Neal. This is the eighth edition. My mom kept repeating, let zero be the origin, let zero be the origin. And I eventually realized that the idea of zero itself comes from Arab civilization. Western math began counting at one. The titles of my father's books had a subtle impact on the way that I thought about the region. But it was the conversations I had with my mother about her experiences in Israel that really shaped how I thought about that place. We learned about socialist ideals. Her entry point in learning about Israel was through the socialist Zionist movement. A lot of the discussions of the labor Zionist youth movement 
were about kibbutz life and the Holocaust, and we learned about socialist ideals. It was much more of a philosophy of life, but it didn't include Arabs or Palestinians. Well, of course it was incomplete, and of course it was biased. A stick in the sand has a shadow that shifts, because the sun in the sky, like me, always drifts. And if you watch carefully as the sun moves its spot, the stick's shadow gets longer, then shorter, then not. So do you guys want to try to I remember seeing pictures in magazines of shoes in the desert. They took off their shoes and they just left, I was told. They just left, I was told. We were told that the Israeli government asked the Arabs to stay, but they fled anyway. And I really believed that until several years later. See, like S and then O. You know, you said it was S O. Some of the sounds come from here. So, ta, it's ta, ta, ta. <laughs> I have a lot to learn. Mahmoud Ghanam. Omar Murad. Aid Badr. Mohanad Ghanam. Rula Ashur. Let's zero be the origin. Let's zero be the origin. Can you say like ha? Ha, 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 ha. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, Mahmoud. Like a little People try to say my real name, they say ha. Mahmoud. Because they can't say the ha. That's like saying ma and then like saying like ha ha. Mahmoud. Like make like a press on it like ha. Mahmoud. Yeah, I'll work on it. A stick in the sand has a shadow that shifts. Because the sun in the sky, like me, always drifts. And if you watch carefully as the sun moves its spot, the stick's shadow gets longer, then shorter, then not. When I see my father's books now, with a totally different analysis of imperialism and colonialism in Palestine, it's really interesting for me to notice the way that God, nation, and state are connected in those book titles. They're also connected in my education and my mother's education as well. Let's zero be the origin. Let's zero.
it's funny because so many of my dad's book titles speak to the idea of either God or the nation of Israel being absent from that place. It's so strange to think that the focus is on absence rather than the presence of Palestinians creating thousands of years of culture, history, and civilization. Palestine pictured. Palestine, historical and descriptive. The land of Israel, Israel. London, the manners, customs, and institutions of the people, the ruins of ancient cities, the prospects of missionary enterprises, of Boston, 1853. You know, when the second Intifada started, I realized just how many maps there were. A different history really hit me in the face. See, my mom used to tell me that part of the philosophy was that there's something inherently good about work, just working, working with your hands, working in the fields, building things, making the desert bloom. It was just part of the philosophy. That people would work all day and dance all night because everybody would be so imbued with the spirit of Zionism and establishing the state, establishing the state, establishing the state. I learned throughout my life that the Arabs had fled when the state was declared. I remember seeing pictures in magazines of shoes in the desert. They took off their shoes and they just left, I was told. We were told that the Israeli government asked the Arabs to stay, but they fled anyway. And I really believed that until several years later. I even lived in Israel and I didn't understand the plight of the Arabs because we never had a chance to really meet any and talk with them. I hadn't thought about the rights of the Palestinians, partly because it wasn't discussed. A lot of the discussions of the Labour Zionist Youth Movement were about kibbutz life and the Holocaust, and we learned about socialist ideals. It was much more of a philosophy of life, but it didn't include Arabs or Palestinians. You know, I really believe that the Jewish community needs to stop ignoring history if we're going to create a new map, one that includes all points of origin. Let's see. For Out Front in Toronto, I'm Rena Katz. Can You Say Ha? was produced by Rena Katz for the Canadian program Out Front. Rena won the 2003 Third Coast Festival Best New Artist Award.
Next are the trills, involving the repeated vibration of one articulator against another. First, a bilabial trill. Ra. Ra. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. Next, we come on to the non-pulmonic consonants. First, the bilabial click. Ah. Between vowels, that's ah-ah. The dental click is ah. You will notice that it has an affricated release. Ah-ah. Tourists travel to thousands of places every year. Almost 80 million tourists traveled to France in 2007. 60 million went to Spain, and another 50 million went to China. All of these tourists had very, very different experiences, of course, wherever they went. But producer Martin Williams somehow evokes what all tourists might feel, abroad in an unfamiliar place, in this next story called, appropriately, The Tourist. goes unrecognized. The tourist eats ice cream. The tourist dresses inappropriately. The tourist walks. The tourist applies lotions. The tourist says we shouldn't have come. The tourist stares in shoe shop windows. The tourist drinks the house wine. The tourist covers other people's luggage. The tourist wonders what social security is like here. The tourist likes the view. The tourist thinks what he might be doing if he was at home. The tourist apologizes. The tourist crosses the road with care. The tourist goes on a boat. The tourist is credulous. The tourist doesn't like the look of the area around the station. The tourist swims. The tourist takes a tram. The tourist hears music everywhere. Come on, come on, come on. 
The tourist is averse to other tourists. The tourist counts his mosquito bites. The tourist looks for a cup of tea. The tourist finds his hat inadequate. The tourist relaxes. The tourist buys too much cheese. The tourist smiles at local old ladies, but they don't smile back. The tourist urinates in the sink. The tourist acquires a liking for the local pastries. The tourist feels like a voyeur. The tourist gets flustered when boarding a bus. The tourist burns. The tourist wants to be liked. The tourist seeks shade. The tourist is glad he isn't at work. The tourist takes no photographs. The tourist tips big. The tourist thinks about moving here. The tourist has two or three showers a day. The tourist sits at his window eating pistachios and listens to the radio. The tourist stares. The tourist carries a map. The tourist is more than usually sympathetic to beggars. The tourist sits in the sun. The tourist believes the key is not to look like a tourist. The tourist is wary of taxes. The tourist forgets not to flush the paper. The tourist feels confident about ordering coffee and beer. The tourist brought his tent. The tourist waits. The tourist eats seafood. The tourist has blistered feet. The tourist writes no postcards. The tourist identifies the nationality of people on site. The tourist wonders how anybody gets any work done in this heat. The tourist tries. The tourist smokes a different brand of cigarettes. The tourist washes his socks in the shower. The tourist sits in the park in the afternoon. The tourist sweats. The tourist doesn't see what all the fuss is about. The tourist goes home. Cabin crew doors this part to these armor cross check. Real slow tunnel my name's Kellerman, Cab today is Carolina, Laura, Antonio and Aurora. We should be taking very good care of your route. In preparation for departure, please ensure that your seatbelts are securely fastened. Seat backs and tray tables are in the upright locks position, armrests down and window blinds are fully open. By direction of the Irish Aviation Authority, the use of laptop computers, CD Walkmans, any other battery or laser operated equipment may be used on board, but only when the aircraft is fully airborne and the fastened seatbelt sign has been switched off. Thank you.
The Tourist was produced by Martin Williams for the show Unknown Country on Resonance FM, London's first radio art station. To read an interview with Martin in which he reveals why he's a terrible tourist, visit thirdcoastfestival.org and click on Resound. While you're there, you can also find a link to Dave Isay's portrait of Robert Shields, the obsessive diarist you heard about earlier in the show. The entire day is accounted for. I I don't leave anything out. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The program is hosted by Gwen Maxi, produced by Delaney Hall, and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. The Third Coast Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and sponsorship from American Airlines, Chicago's Navy Pier, and explorechicago.org, the city of Chicago's official tourism website. The festival is produced in partnership with Chicago Public Radio and the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.